<laughs> I brought this blanket up here, not because I'm cold, although I am cold, because uh, I grew up in Phoenix, I like heat. But uh, what I wanted to say is that everything we're going to talk about today could be summed up in this blanket. And at the end of the message, if you're still listening, I'll tell you why this blanket is so important. So you promise to continue to listen to me? Oh, that was... Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm real encouraged by that response, but, but thank you very much. We're in the book of Titus, and we've been in the book of Titus for the last couple of weeks. And uh, we've been talking about a lot of wonderful things. We've been talking about old people. We've been talking about young people. We're talking about women. We're talking about old women. We're talking about old women that don't have to be sensible. And uh, so there's been a lot of great stuff that we've learned that I never knew that old women don't have to be sensible. But it's a great thing to understand that so that as we move forward, we have, you know, good insights to biblical teaching. This morning is a little bit, think about this Thanksgiving is coming up this coming week, as you know. And, you know, at the Thanksgiving table, the traditional table, typically, if you think about it, there's a lot of things on there that are sort of important or maybe unimportant. For example, there's the cranberry sauce. Nobody likes cranberry sauce, but it's always there. At... Man, man, wow. Uh, this is tough. This is tough. Uh, I know I've been gone for a while, but please, you know. Um, anyways, there's other things as well. We, of course, cranberry sauce is obviously a favorite of some of you. Uh, but then there are the muffins, and then there's, pota- there's, uh, there's a green salad, there's green beans, there's gravy, uh, there's glasses of your favorite liquid, uh, and so things like that. But what it all really typically comes down to in a typical traditional Thanksgiving meal is the turkey the stuffing, and the mashed potatoes. The sort of the, that's the meat of why we gathered around, right? We love to kill those turkeys and eat them. So that's what we're all about on Thanksgiving Sunday. <laughs> and uh, now why did I bring all that up? Uh, the reason I brought that up is because what we're talking about in Titus 3 is the meat and potatoes of our faith. The meat and the potatoes. We've talked about all the other things that surround it, but today it's the meat and potatoes. Let me read the text. You might follow along in the bulletin. is an outline that's exactly like this one here. I encourage you to use it because you can see that there are three parts to it. And I'm going to read the first two parts that I think are so important to us. The Apostle Paul is writing to a fellow named Titus on the Isle of Crete. He's helping these new believers to become followers of Jesus and all the fullness of what that means. And Titus 3 says, remind them. There's lots of times we need to be reminded. There's going to be aspects about this that some of us in this room need to be reminded of, or it might be some things we've never heard before. So remind them. Remind the people to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy and hateful and hating one another. I mean, what what a tough crowd. You think about all these things that he's describing in their behavior. And then in verse 4 is this wonderful word, but. In contrast. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness but according to his mercy. 
by the washing of regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And that's the meat and the potatoes of the Christian life right there. What we're going to learn today are three things. Number one, why do we need grace? Because we're sinners. Number two, how do we receive that grace? Through a Savior, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, what's the results of that grace? The results of that grace is service. So let me go through those three parts so we look at it together. You can follow along in the outline. You can follow along on the big screen behind me to help to follow the progress that we made in finding fruitful grace for us as we move ahead. Why do we need God's grace? Because we're all sinners. I hope that's not a newsflash. I know it's a little bit of a downer, but uh, we're going to show you why that's still good news in the long run of what God wants to do. The Apostle Paul begins with this reminder there's two aspects about sin. There's two aspects about way we'll behave and that would maybe fall short of what we just sang about the holiness of God. The first part is described here in verses 1 and 2. It says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And so it just describes this, this essence of this relationship that we have, that there's kind of a respect for all leaders and to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one. So let me just climb out on a limb here right now, because what he's talking about is this relationship that we should have with Jesus Christ. And as we've heard, each one reach one. And we shouldn't have anything that comes between that core truth of the meat and potatoes of Christ and what he's done for us. So let me encourage us. You know, we're in a political season. I don't know if you noticed that. There's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of feelings about President Trump. Some love him, some loathe him. All I would do and say for some of us in this room is don't ever let your attitude about Trump get in the way of your actions for Jesus Christ. I say that. Uh, Thank you. This last week I visited a man who's dying. And I'm trying to witness to him and read scripture and pray for him. And he says, I fired the last nurse that would come and take care of me. So why did you fire her? Because she got in my face and all she could talk about was Trump, Trump, Trump. And I said, I don't want to hear any more about it. And she wouldn't shut up. So I fired her. And that triggered in my mind that sometimes whether you love them or hate them or the politics, the impeachment and all that stuff, man, please, remember, we serve the highest power of all the powers in the world. And so when the Apostle Paul talks about be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing consideration for all men. That means that you and I, whatever our stance happens to be in the world of politics, that we serve the highest power there is. 
And our reflection of that behavior should be manifest to them. I would never want my political stance to get in the way of someone's spiritual, eternal destiny. That's my encouragement. I'm going to climb back from that limb right now, go back to the base root of the tree. And then he talks about this that is a little bit harder to think about as well. He says here, I want you to overcome the progressive decay of sin because sin has this way of metastasizing into every behavior and every aspect of life. And when I looked at this text, you know, some of the things you can't see when you read it in the English, you can see it when you read it in the original Greek. And so I'm no Greek scholar, but let me show you something that I think is reflective of this and the behavior of these people. These people were not very nice people in Crete. One of the politicians or one of the early writers said this, the Cretans by their, uh, by their, I'm going to read it over here. The Cretans, by their ingrained avarice, are engaged in countless public and private seditions, murders, and civil wars. Now, with a few exceptions, you could find no habits prevailing in private life more steeped in treachery than those in Crete and no public policy more inequitable. These are not nice people. So Paul then begins to describe them. And notice these four words. And notice this, what I think is sort of a progression or maybe even a regression of what sin does. And this is where you get these elements of how maybe you can't see it here as we read it, but maybe this is what God had in mind when the Spirit inspired Paul to write these four words down. He says that some of you, for once we were foolish. The word for foolish means a mind that has no thoughts that has no truth. And so there is this classification of sinners that I don't know that that is a sin. And so I act in a way that I'm totally unaware. So it's a mind that is unaware is what Paul is talking about. And then what happens, he goes on to describe not only are we foolish, but we are disobedient. And so there comes a point in time when my mind suddenly discovers I'm taught something, I heard something, I read something, that this is what God says about aspects of my life. And I realize that those things are wrong and I shouldn't be doing them. But even knowing that, I still am not persuaded, so I sin anyways. So it's the progression of foolishness, I don't know what I don't know, to disobedience, now I know, but I still choose to disobey. And then that goes to the third point of the progression of sin, that he says not only were ourselves foolish, disobedient, but we're deceived. Deceived is this beautiful Greek word that I've talked about before, planeo. We get the English word planet from it. It means deception means I am orbiting around the wrong thing. I'm orbiting around the wrong values. I'm orbiting around the wrong belief system, but it but I don't recognize that because it feels like I'm still doing something profitable with my life. It's just that I'm profiting around something that's not very valuable to God, or maybe that is contrary to the holiness of God. So a deceived person is someone who has this inability to understand that what they're doing is sin, but they don't recognize it as sin anymore. Because the more you disobey and the more you walk in that foolishness, the more the deception overcomes you, and you don't recognize that what you're doing is being wrong, which leads to the fourth of the words that Paul used here. So you're enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. The word enslaved conjures the idea that I am totally immersed, that I no longer am free from sin, that it becomes normalized in my life, 
and I don't recognize that it's wrong anymore. It just feels like this is the way the world should go. This is the value system of the world around me. I am just immersed like a fish in water, doesn't know that they're in water. It just feels normal. Now, let me help drive this home so that you would remember it with a little homespun story that tugs at my own heart. Here's a little dog, Izzy, little Scottish terrier, very small Scottish terrier, uh, just the sweetest little girl. Well, Izzy had a little problem over the last few months. Izzy wasn't eating some of the things that we would give her, and Joy, in fact, she had pancreatitis, so Joy actually made in this pressure cooker fresh meal with chicken. I mean, it was better than what we often we eat ourselves. And so she made this wonderful food for Izzy because her pancreatitis, she can't eat certain things. So we get, and then over the course of time, she stopped eating that. We gave her treats and she would stop eating that. And I noticed as she refused to eat, she got skinnier. And when I pet her on her back, I could feel the ribs and the bones. And she was losing muscle mass. And finally, a week ago, when Joy was up in Canada, I said, you know, I, I better take her to the vet. So I took her to the vet about a week and a half ago. And so the vet said, oh, let me feel, and couldn't feel anything. Let me just take an x-ray and see what's going on inside of her. So he took an x-ray, and lo and behold, there was a tumor on her liver. And her gallbladder was just all enlarged. And so I was faced with a heavy decision all by myself. So I called Joy. She was up the coast, up and towards Canada. And so I said, the vet says that we can't save her. So that night, we put her down. So she was an 11-year member of our family. If you have dogs, you appreciate, uh, you know, sort of the heartache that we went through. So we both cried on the phone together as I held little Izzy in my hands. And then finally, as the doctor administered the euthanasia process. So that was hard. So I want to make something valuable out of that. (laughs) And let me put it in this way. I think in a spiritual realm, sometimes, as Paul talks about, from foolishness to enslavement, we begin to acquire a wrong value system and a belief system by our behavior and our attitudes in our lives. And what happens is that like little Izzy, our appetite for the things of the Lord, of Scripture, of prayer, of worship, of Christian fellowship, of each one reach one, caring about others that don't have Jesus. Sort of that spiritual appetite is no longer there. There's not the hunger and thirst for righteousness that Jesus talks about. And we become sort of self-contained and enslaved to the, the ways of the world, and suddenly my heart desire for the Lord is not as strong as it once was, and my prayer life is kind of anemic if it's there at all. And The scriptures just don't speak truth to me anymore and sort of going based upon how I think, what I think, what I believe is true. And what happens when I'm not nourished, like Izzy became so malnourished by not eating, that the spiritual muscle that gives me discipline and perseverance and patience and love for people that are hard to love and the, the spiritual muscle of living the Christian life is diminished 
And all that is boiled down to the fact that I've got something in my body that is metastasizing and is stealing away the spiritual vitality of my love for Christ and his word and all the things that the discipline of the Christian life require. And so Paul is talking about this metastasized spiritual condition from foolish to enslavement, and they don't recognize their sinful ways. Sort of an example of that, just to help me drive it home one more time. This last week, a couple days ago, I went to visit Bill Grant, one of our longest-standing members here at Calvary Church. He's 103. He'll be 104 in another week or so. So he's been up there. He's up there, right? He's as sharp as, he's as, sharp as could be, though. He's getting a little weaker, but his mind is as sharp as could be. And here's a little story he told me. He loves to reminisce about years ago. I love to listen to it. And he talked about when he and Evelyn got married. So they had a wonderful wedding at a church here in Santa Ana. And he didn't want anybody to put, you know, just married on the car. He, had, he said it's a 1936 two-door Plymouth. That was his car, he said. And so he didn't want anybody to decorate it, so he'd hid it away. And then his friend brought it around. He says, okay, now bring it around at such and such a time so that Evelyn and I can just jump at it and ride off. So as they came around, brought the car around, they started throwing rice on them, and, and so they had a great celebration of rice. And so Bill and Evelyn get in the car, and they drive off. And he says, we got up to the north side of L.A. And he didn't have a room. He didn't have reservations for a motel room. So, so it's a little different in those days. And so... He pulls into this motel. You know, the old motels are kind of the single units with a little garage. You see, see some of these old-fashioned motels. And he pulls in, and he goes to the manager of the motel, and he says, I'd like a room for my wife and I. And the manager looked at Bill, and he says, You look too young to be married. <laughs> and the manager said, You're not married. I'm not renting a room to you. And Bill says, no, 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 we are married. And he pulled some rice out of his pocket. (laughs) See? Some rice fell out of the car. Oh, okay, okay. I see that rice. I I think you're married. I'll rent you a room. Now think about that. Would that happen today? Would anybody think twice? And it was just kind of like, oh, yeah, like the, the frog in the boiling water, you know. You, you sort of lose the sense of, wait, this, is this always the way it's been? Or is this what's normal? Have I become part of the cultural values? Has my heart and my mind become enslaved to a value system that is very far from what God had originally intended? Now, that's the problem. That's why we need God's grace. And then he says, let me show you what God's grace can do. And there's some really important things that Paul says here. Having laid the groundwork for some of the troubled sinfulness of our lives, he says in verse 4, but, but, we can experience God's grace because we have a Savior. That makes all the difference in the world. What he says here in verses 4 through 7 is this, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, So he talks about the Trinity. I love that song that we sang a few songs ago. It was all about the Trinity. You had God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The whole counsel of the Godhead is at work in our salvation. 
And what Paul is going to talk about is the grace of God that the whole counsel of the, of the, of the Godhead brings salvation to us to transform us. And it begins with God the Father. And I love the way he approaches us. He says, here's all the sins that you people are doing in Crete. And maybe they're doing it in Calvary Church Santa Ana as well. I don't know. But he says, I want you to understand that God's approach to all those who have done all those terrible things and have become enslaved to all these various lusts and these pleasures of this world, this is God's response. God and his kindness and his love for mankind appeared. If I want to reach one, I don't begin with sin. I begin with God's love. That's what God does. But when the kindness of God our Savior, His love for mankind appeared. The word appeared means to light, to bring light. So we begin with God's love. Romans 2, 4, God's kindness, God's kindness leads us to repentance. God's kindness. Not God's judgment. Not God's shame. Not God's condemnation not God's ruthless and ugly attitude to describe someone as a terrible person because of their sin. It's God's kindness that leads to repentance. It's God's kindness that appeared for mankind to show his love. So if I want to reach someone, I begin with where God begins, God's kindness and God's love. Then he goes on to describe it in this way, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ. So it goes from God the Father and his love and his kindness that appears, that brings light. Then he goes to the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit regenerates. The Holy Spirit revives. This word for regenerate, uh, the, the root Greek word there is genesis. And then there is a prefix, again. Genesis again, or birth again. Jesus said, you must be born again. It's the same concept. The Holy Spirit regenerates, gives new life, gives birth again, gives a brand new beginning so that he can revive us, revival by his power. This is the key that if the idea that Paul is saying is to regenerate, there is an assumption. The assumption is that if I need to be regenerated, If I need to have a new beginning, then I've got something that precedes that. And what he is talking about, if I need to be regenerated with new life, then therefore before that I am dead. Because you regenerate what's dead, you don't regenerate what's alive. Ephesians 2.1 says that we are dead in our sins. We're dead in our sins. And so therefore the Holy Spirit says, Dave, and to any who call upon me, he says, to any who call upon me, I will regenerate, I will take what is dead, and I will give to it a new beginning, a new life. I will set a refresh that is just like being born into this world the first time. I will give you new birth spiritually into this world a second time with spiritual life. There is an assumption, therefore, that when Paul talks about giving the Holy Spirit to regenerate me, it's not my job to regenerate people. What God wants us to do is to lay out the truth of Christ, that Jesus Christ is the one who justifies, that is to make righteous. Jesus Christ does that. Verse 7 says, so that being justified by his grace, 
we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Christ saves people. Christ regenerates people through His Spirit. Sometimes I feel like some of us who are old in the faith will spend more time condemning people for their sin than enlightening people about a Savior. The Savior, Jesus Christ, is the one who transforms. As you gather with family this coming Thursday, some of you are going to be with family who have no idea what, we're, what I'm talking about. And their culture and their lifestyle may be foolish, it may be disobedient, it may be deceived, or it may be enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Whatever, whatever the thing is, you don't begin with that list. You begin with a heart of God's love, with the hope of the Holy Spirit regenerating, with the presence of Christ who's the one who justifies them. People are never condemned because of their sin. People are condemned because of the rejection of Jesus. John 3.18, John 3.36, both talk about the need for us to turn to Christ. And if we don't turn to Christ, then we feel the condemnation of God. Because we're all sinners. Therefore, we'd all be condemned. It's Christ that takes away the condemnation. So don't condemn with sin. Rather, enlighten them about Christ. Christ is the one who justifies us. He changes us. He regenerates us. He gives us new life. I want us to be people that bring the light of Christ, the love of Christ, so that other people see Christ Because then Christ is the one who begins to chisel away the foolish, the disobedient, the deceived, and the enslaved. He begins to wipe that away. He does this surgical cutout of the metastasized cancer of sin so that this person can have a new life, a new beginning. Let's let Jesus do the work he does best. It's not for me to condemn the sin. It's for me to bring them to Jesus. So as you gather around that table, remember, it's Christ that people need. It's Christ that we must share. And then finally, he wraps it up this way. I love this question. Here's a question that helps to define where I'm at with the Lord, and for some of you perhaps. I love this question. You may have heard it before. If you were to die today and you stand before the God in heaven and he asks you, why should I let you into my kingdom, what would you say? Why should I stand before God in heaven? It's not because I worked hard to get rid of my foolish sins. It's not because I went to church today. It's not because I gave money today. It's not because I'll get baptized next Sunday. It's not because I work hard to do good. If I stand before God in heaven, some people will say, well, I sure hope so. Uh, You know, God, I tried to do all the right things to serve you well, and so therefore I feel like I deserve to be in heaven. And God says, no, 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 that's not what I'm looking for. If I stand before God in heaven to crystallize what God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit has just talked to us about here in this passage. It means that not by my works am I worthy of heaven. Christ, I come before you because of your work for me to die for my sins so that I could be forgiven and that you could therefore remove the sins that are in my life and give to me a new beginning, a new genesis, a new birth. 
that, Jesus, you have done this for me by my faith in you. If that's not your answer, we want to help you find that answer for your life. That it's not removing your sins by your good works, but it's turning to Jesus, believing in him and the Holy Spirit to regenerate and God's love to be experienced so that you can have new life, a new beginning, a fresh start. That's what God does. And when he does that, there's a change. There's a big change. And he goes on to talk about it in this way. The results of God's work is this grace. And I'm going to go through this very quickly to land at one point. He says, this is a trustworthy statement concerning these things. I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes. So therefore, on Thanksgiving Day, around the turkey, I don't say, what do you think about this impeachment stuff? (laughs) And then he concludes with this. Let me drop down to verse 14. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. So that they will not be unfruitful. To meet pressing needs. To engage in good deeds so that they will not be unprofitable. Let me, let me show you how this is sometimes done. I don't know if you know this, but we have a school here in our campus. Calvary Christian School. Here's two of our fourth grade teachers. One of the things that they did here recently is to partner together and I come back to the blanket. These two teachers and their students have made these blankets. Why did they make these blankets? Because they wanted to package them together, and here's some of the kids that are making those blankets. If you can see those on the screen there. And they have these little care packages that the blanket's going to be part of because they want to give it to people that we have in our little VIPs room over here, so those people that need to be a little bit warmer in the winter. It doesn't transform someone's life, but it's an act of pressing needs that are being met because fourth graders are learning what it means to serve other people that have needs. Accompanying these blankets are a bunch of cards that they have put into those little baskets that you see. Here's two of them. Let me read what these fourth graders are writing to these who have pressing needs of a blanket. I'm a fourth grade girl that goes to a school in Santa Ana. That would be right here. I hope you stay warm in these blankets. I hope you become a Christian. For instance, in John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That is a great God, I know. I hope God will guide you through beginning Christianity. If you already know him, I pray that you will grow closer to him. Blessings, Zoe. Here's another fourth grade letter. This one reads this way, Dear friend, I hope you know that you are loved. Jesus is the light, the Savior. He died on the cross for your sins and knows everything. You are watched over every day. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you follow his path and uh, his way, you will be filled with happiness. 1 Corinthians also says that if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. God is faithful. He will not let you fall and be tested to do something wrong. He, God, is all you need to have a happy life in God we trust, Ali. Fourth graders, fourth graders. 
I'm thankful for Calvary Christian School that we have the opportunity to help these young lives understand the core of the meat and potatoes of biblical truth that revolves around the person of Jesus Christ and that there are sinners that need a Savior and that these fourth graders are in service to accomplish that work. So every day, we're thankful for the hundreds of kids that we have an opportunity to impact for the Lord Jesus Christ so they can send that message out. Calvary Christian School, worthy of your investment. I'm thankful for our leadership like Leah and Ginny and Nicole and others that have a great hand in making this place work. That's what it's all about. Now, there's also an opportunity for service of baptism. There's going to be a class right after service right over here in this prayer room. It's an opportunity for you to serve the Lord by displaying your faith in Jesus Christ. I encourage you to consider that if you've never been baptized. Let this meaning of, of, of Christ's justification, Christ changing your life, the Holy Spirit regenerating you, let that be on display as Jesus calls us all to be baptized. And then one last act of service that we have an opportunity to be part of, and that is to help spread the word, to pick up your boxes so that you can spread your cookies. That's not a bad idea, Trader Joe's or whatever, uh, whatever you want. I love vanilla wafers. I'd probably put a whole box of vanilla wafers in there. And just send them out and let people see the love of Christ because Christ helps us to understand that once our sin has been saved through Jesus by trusting in him, he therefore sends us out to do things that are profitable, to help meet pressing needs so we live fruitful lives for his sake. That's Titus 3. And I pray that we be people who live that life of faith. We're going to conclude our service right now because I don't want you to forget that we're supposed to go out there and get boxes <laughs> and go out. So I'm going to pray for us and pray that God would send you on along the way. And if you'd like to go to the baptism class, I pray that you would consider that as well. And remember this Thanksgiving, Sunday, uh, Thanksgiving day, we'll be here at 10 o'clock and love to engage with you as we gather together as well. So let me pray for us and pray God's blessing upon us. Father God, I thank you for your love. I thank you that you remind us that in your scriptures you have called us into love and kindness. Because some of us maybe are caught up in the foolishness or the disobedience or the deception or the enslavement of sin. Maybe there's some of us in this room that are encumbered by that. And it's like a cancer that's stealing away the spiritual vitality of their lives. I pray that they would know the experience of Christ and the new birth of the Holy Spirit's regeneration that would give to them this new life and that Christ would meet them right where they're at to take away and cut out that which is holding them back from the vitality of the spiritual richness of what you desire for all of us. And now, Father, as we go out, I pray that we would understand what Paul says here and help us to be better than the Cretans. <laughs> help us to be better than them, to be people of service, not maligning others, but serving others, to be engaged in good deeds, to do those things that are profitable to serve others around us. Thank you for these fourth graders. 
Thank you that these children have illustrated for us what it looks like to be people of service that is packaged with the gospel of Jesus. Help us now as we go out, and I pray this blessing upon us all. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. I pray this now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. God bless. Go and serve.